Lord, we rejoice and acknowledge that it is not in many, it is not in us. We rejoice that it is in Christ alone. We pray that you would help us to not be proud people, but to be humble people. We pray that as we begin this new book, that you might teach us many things through it about what it means for us to be in Christ. Teach us things about our own sanctification. I pray that the areas where we are proud, you would humble us. I pray where we need encouragement, you would encourage us. I pray that in all things that we would find Christ sufficient. In his name, amen. What does it look like to live out life in the body of Christ? I mean, what does our day-to-day life being in Christ look like? What does our church life look like in Christ? These are questions that are answered for us in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so because of this, I have chosen to subtitle the entire series, A Theology of Christian Sanctification. Today marks, uh, as you all know, the beginning of a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's impossible to know exactly how long uh, this will last. Um, But my goal is really to do this book justice um, and to preach this book uh, exegetically, okay? What do we mean when we say that? What we mean by this is that we are simply going to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and we're going to explain the meaning of each verse and each passage. We're not going to skip over parts that are uncomfortable for us. We're not going to skip over the hard parts. Okay, There are some passages in 1 Corinthians that if I were choosing this myself, I would skip over to be baptized for the dead. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> and we'll find out when we, we won't find out when we get there. It'll still, it'll, still, it'll still be a mystery to us. There's passages like that in the book of 1 Corinthians that are admittedly challenging, and yet God has given to us his word. As one person has said, we preach this way because God knows what his people need better than we do. You did not come here today I hope you didn't come here today because you think I know what you need, okay? I don't know what you need. God knows what you need. And God has given us what we need. And our uh, call, uh, our calling as Christians, and uh, my call as as a pastor, is not to be creative with the Word of God. It, It is not to come here and say, let me make an attempt to entertain you by telling you some really cool stories. I'm not good at telling cool stories, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, And that's not important anyways. This is not a self-help seminar. This is not a motivational session, according to the wisdom of the world. This is simply God's word, because we believe that this is the most important thing. And so this is what really tempers why we do what we do here. This, this is why, if, if this is your first time at the beginning of a book that we'll be preaching through, hopefully this helps you understand a little bit why we're doing what we're doing. Why is it that we are going verse by verse? Why is it that we're, we're going through a whole book? Why is it that we're not just hitting the things that highlight it and then move on to something else? Um, it is because we believe that we have been tasked to be God's representatives here on earth. And he's given to us the word that he wants preached, and that's what we're going to do. If we begin with the conviction that God's words are more important than John's words, then we can plow ahead in the book of 1 Corinthians, committing ourselves to the careful exposition, we'll call it, of each and every chapter and verse. Uh, the, the nature of, uh, of a, an introduction to a book is such that we are kind of covering a lot of, uh, 
background material, introductory material. And so some of what we'll hear today, and if you were with us in Genesis at the very beginning, you, you are familiar with that. Um, but some of this will be a little bit more um, some technical information about the book itself. And then towards the about halfway through or so the message today, we'll transition to, ins- to some more of the themes of the book. And what is this saying for us practically? So we'll get a little bit more into the practical side of things uh, about halfway through or so. Um, and so, so, uh, so that, that's what our goal is for today. Uh, this message today is an important message because we're setting the table for the next several months ahead. We're setting the table for the nature of the book, the occasion of the book, all of these things. Um, and so to, to, to miss this, in fact, I'll probably encourage anyone who has missed this, maybe next week, is to go back and listen to this message today to kind of get your bearings uh, for where we are. So I'm just going to give you the outline today. Today we're going to look at the author and date, we're going to look at the audience, uh, we're going to look at Corinth itself, and kind of the nature of where uh, these Christians are at and the culture, the occasion for writing, and the themes. And of course, um, you may consider a good um, study Bible that would give a lot of these things and more. Uh, I can't cover everything here, um, but these are going to be some of the, the big highlights that we're going to talk about for the book as a whole. So let's uh, jump right in. Author and date. The author of the book of 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul. This is in the realm of books that are debated. This is not included in that group. Almost nobody debates whether Paul was the the author or not. Um, Many books of the Bible are debated about in uh, some scholarly works today, but this one is not the subject of much debate at all. Uh, I'm going to give you some internal and external evidence uh, here. The internal evidence is evidence from the book itself. The very first verse, 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. So Paul is identifying himself as the author here right from the beginning. And then if we fast forward all the way to the end of the book, in chapter 16 and verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Externally, there is uh, plenty of evidence. Uh, We would include in this some of the early church fathers, uh, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, uh, as well as other early church fathers that uh, stated that Paul was the author of this book as well. Uh, When he wrote the book is also not very, uh, not highly disputed. Uh, It has kind of been narrowed down to somewhere between a two to three year period. Uh, most likely, this two- to three-year period is going to be A.D. 53, 54, or 55, with most commentators that I read saying 54 or 55 is uh, the date there. This was written before Pentecost, and we know that because in the book itself, Paul says in chapter 16, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he's writing probably in the spring of the year before uh, before Pentecost, since uh, Pentecost is May or June. Um, also note as well from the same verse that we have here that he's writing from uh, Ephesus. And also note that this is not the first letter that he's written to the church at Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. He had written to them a previous letter. Um, and then he writes another letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so in 2nd Corinthians, chapter 2 and verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, uh, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So he had written another uh, letter in between. It, it's a minority position that he's referring to 1st Corinthians here it's most likely that it's another one. So he has written at least four letters to the church in Corinth total, two of which we have and two of which we do not have. Uh, Speaking of Corinth, what we uh, are going to look at now is going to be helpful to understand who Paul is writing to and specifically why he's addressing the particular issues that he is addressing. Who was he writing it to. Well, the audience is the church at Corinth. 
Again, first chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Now, if we were to put together a little bit of the puzzle from Paul's missionary journeys, we would know that uh, Crispus was one of Paul's first converts in Corinth. And Paul originally visited Corinth on his second missionary journey. And so he, on his second missionary journey, he goes out, he visits Corinth. Uh, There are some converts in a small little church uh, has begun. And so if we go to Acts, we can read about this from his second missionary journey, uh, the conversion of Crispus. And again, uh, this is in uh, Corinth, chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is the birth of the church at Corinth. This is who Paul is writing to in the book of First Corinthians. Now that this church is established, Paul begins to correspond back and forth with this body of believers to encourage them in Christ. It's also important to note that Paul is specifically writing to the believers here. He's not writing to Corinth in general. He's writing to the believers here. Uh, and we know that from, uh, let me uh, go back a slide here, First uh, Corinthians 1 and verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those what? Sanctifying. Okay, so he's talking to the believers here, the church And um, furthermore, we see that not only is he writing to the church in Corinth and just clarifying that he means those who are sanctified, those who are believers, but we see that it's those who, according to verse 2, are called to be saints. Note in particular this word called here. This word is featured uh, several times in chapter 1. And right from the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, the doctrine of election is prominently featured. 24, or, uh, verse 24 of chapter 1. But to those who are what? Called. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. These are simply just different ways of talking about the same group of people. It's the church at Corinth, a.k.a. those who are sanctified, a.k.a. those who are called. This group of believers that have been called out uh, for the sake of Christ, uh, is, is the group of people that uh, Paul is, is writing to. Um, the Lord himself refers to these called ones in Acts 18. And so, uh, again, I'm going to go back to this Acts 18 passage. In Acts 18, Paul is visiting Corinth, and we already saw that Crispus is one of the very first converts And then the Lord appears to Paul in a dream, and he says something about these Corinthians. And he uses uh, an interesting phrase here, verse 18, or chapter 18, 9 through 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, again, this is about Corinth, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. There are many in this city that the Lord is calling out for himself. Again, this idea of this calling or this doctrine of election. God is uh, sovereignly working in Corinth to call out people for his own name, and he's encouraging Paul that no one's going to hurt you while you're here in Corinth uh, so that many of these people can come to know Christ, Um, these, these called out ones. Now, what is interesting about Corinth is that there is very much a night and day difference between these called out ones and the culture that they were embedded in. Uh, These Corinthian Christians, these called out ones, these ones who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, are living in a culture that is drastically different from God's standard of holiness. And so we want to spend just a moment here exploring the cultural context uh, of the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was a Greek city that was destroyed in 146 BC, and it was reestablished as a Roman colony in 44 BC. The location of Corinth made it an important trade route, um, 
It's located in modern-day Greece, and it's situated on a four-mile uh, isthmus. And I'm going to show you this now. This is, of course, a modern uh, map of, uh, of the area here. Now, today, there is a canal, and, and you could kind of see uh, this canal that goes through. This was completed in the 19th century, so it would not have been there uh, in Paul's day. Uh, and here's just another um, uh, map of this. Uh, so in Paul's day, there was no um, canal that was dug through there, but there was a four-mile-long road called the, the Diolkos Road, and this was cut out of the rock, and small ships could be carted on this road and taken across uh, to the other side. And here's uh, some of the, the image of the road today as it sits. Um, the, the advantage of taking a ship through here is that you're saving a 250-mile voyage all the way around. So basically what's going on with this, and the reason that this is important for our, for our um, uh, study here, is because Corinth is a hub of activity in the ancient world. I mean, there are people going through Corinth constantly. Um, the city of Corinth, it is believed, had a population between 80 and 100,000 people. Uh, just to kind of compare this to something familiar to us, Wayne County, the entire county, is about 115,000 people. And so Wayne County is just a little bit bigger uh, than, uh, than what Corinth um, would have most likely been in that day. Um, all of this is to get to, I think, the most relevant point, and that is that with all this hub of activity, with all the trade, with all that's going on in Corinth, the city was known was marked for its moral corruption and depravity, especially its sexual depravity. Uh, and, of course, unfortunately, port cities are such that this kind of thing uh, just is, uh, goes part and parcel with it. Uh, religious prostitution was rampant. There was a temple, uh, as you know, dedicated to Aphrodite. Uh, during Plato's day, and of course Plato is uh, lived a little bit before Paul, but even during his day, uh, Plato, instead of saying a prostitute, he would say a Corinthian girl. This might give you an idea for what the culture was like in Corinth. It was just known for its uh, sexual immorality. Now, for this reason, it is rather telling of what's going on in the church when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For Paul to write to a church that is in Corinth, known for what it's known for, and to say that you're tolerating something that even the Corinthians around you are not tolerating is a pretty telling statement about what's going on in the church and why it's so important that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. The problem, uh, and I probably could have had something on the screen here just noting this, uh, the problem at the church of Corinth is this. They began to blur the line between the church and the world. The problem of the church at Corinth was that they began to tolerate worldliness, and they began to just say, anything goes, and whatever the culture around us is doing is what we're going to do as well. They began to look like Corinth, and even in some situations, go further than Corinth, as we can see here from chapter 5 and verse 1. And so for this reason, Paul needs to confront the Corinthians uh, and to address all of these compromises, which brings us to the occasion of the letter. Uh, and this is not being redundant by saying an occasional letter. Uh, this is actually a certain kind of letter um, that we find in Scripture. Um, one, one of the things that scholars oftentimes do when they uh, study through a book in Scripture is to try to develop some kind of an outline and to try to determine uh, what conventions 
is this, per, is this writer following when he writes this book? Does it have a, a clear introduction and body and conclusion? Is there some rhetoric going on back and forth? And so uh, scholars will oftentimes try to match up, oh, he's writing according to this convention of the day or using this particular uh, rhetorical strategy of the day or whatever it might be is what this particular author is trying to do. First Corinthians has proven to be a challenge in that regard. And so we're going to acknowledge that 1 Corinthians is what has been termed an occasional letter. Some people are perplexed and struggle to find the exact literary convention Paul used to organize his letter, but none can be found. Some have proposed that he wrote using Greek rhetoric, but it's too disjointed to follow that particular convention. In fact, it's the disjointedness of 1 Corinthians that's perplexing. He just goes from here to there to there to there to there to there to there to there. And scholars are like, where's the outline to 1 Corinthians? Um, However, if we understand it as an occasional letter, then there is no confusion at all. An occasional letter, so I can tell you what this means, is a letter where an author is simply writing and addressing specific instances. It's, it's almost as if Paul is just going through a checklist, and he's saying, we're going to address this one, and 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 this one. And that really shouldn't be all that perplexing. He doesn't need to borrow uh, the Greek rhetoric or whatever it might be. Um, with this in mind, that Paul is not following a strict outline, and he's just going through a checklist, there are a couple of things I want to point out that kind of help with a little bit of a loose framework around the book. There's some key phrases that he uses that's going to be helpful to us. Uh, Paul is responding, first of all, to questions that he has received from Corinth. So some of the Corinthian Christians have communicated to him, written to him, whatever, and asked questions, and Paul is going to answer those questions. Um, and uh, I'm going to give you uh, a couple of examples of this. Whenever Paul is answering one of these questions, he's going to use a phrase in Greek that's peri-day. Two Greek words, peri-day. And every time peri-day shows up in 1 Corinthians, it's translated as either now about or now concerning So whenever you see now about or now concerning, he's kind of indicating that he's about to switch gears and he's about to talk about a different topic. So a couple examples of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, peri day, now concerning. And of course, in this one, it's about uh, sexual relations. Now concerning this topic. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1 is another example where he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And so each time you see this, he's changing gears and he's beginning to address a different question uh, or or a different topic here in in the book. Uh, In the book of 1 Corinthians, this peri day or this now concerning phrase shows up a total of six times. And we're going to point this out each time uh, when we come across one uh, one of these phrases. Secondly, not only is Paul responding to questions, but he's responding to reports. So people are reporting to him about issues going on in the church, and he's saying, I've heard that this is going on, and so now he's going to address those as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11 is uh, one of them here. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. And so Paul is simply uh, gets a report from Chloe's people, uh, and then he addresses the issue. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So he's getting a report and he's addressing it. So this book is a conglomeration of all of these things. It's an occasional letter. There's not a strict outline. It's just, I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to talk about this. And I heard you were doing this and I heard you were doing that. And you asked this question, so now I'm going to answer it. And it's kind of all over the map from that uh, perspective, Um, which again is an occasional letter. 
When we combine Paul's answer to questions with his addressing of all these reports, the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians discusses a number of topics, including marriage, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, divisions, incest, lawsuits, the Lord's Supper, the resurrection, and more. He's all over the place, just hitting all these different kinds of issues. One commentator has said that 1 Corinthians is the most practical of all of Paul's letters. Um, Now, whether we would classify it as the most practical or not, it certainly is filled with very practical advice and counsel on a wide range of theological and lifestyle issues. And so for this reason, we also will find the book full of rich application for us uh, today. And since the letter is so full of practical wisdom, we want to ask ourselves, what are some of the big themes that this book touches on? What what are some of the things that we're going to be seeing here uh, in the book? And really, to be honest with you, there are a lot of themes. Um, And so I'm going to kind of just narrow this down to to three themes um, that I think kind of stand out in the book. The themes... In the book of 1 Corinthians, they flow out of the occasional nature of the the letter. Paul is addressing a lot of practical living questions, and this book has a total of 100 imperative verbs. So if you know what an imperative verb is, you know that it's a verb of command. Go do this, do that, stop doing this, stop doing that. So 1 Corinthians has 100 imperative verbs in it. Uh, So Paul is giving a lot of instruction. Now, compare this to the book of Romans, which is kind of uh, the the pinnacle of Paul's theological statement, his doctrinal statement, the book of Romans. The book of Romans has 64 imperative verbs So if you were to put them side by side, you could see that 1 Corinthians is much more instructive than Romans. It has a lot more um, do this and do that and rich application going on. So this uh, rich application introduces us to our first theme, which is this. The Christian life requires obedience. So you want to know what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. This is part of what it is about, that the Christian life requires obedience. Obedience. Justification by faith alone. The doctrine that we hold so dear to us is not a license to sin. Justification by faith alone does not mean now go do whatever you want to do. And Paul is making that clear in this book. God's free grace given to us in the gospel is not a reason to indulge your flesh. And I think we have to emphasize this point in particular because we have to remind ourselves that obeying God's word does not equal legalism. That's not the same thing. Legalism is not obeying God. It's not what that is. And sometimes we think that that's what it is. Oh, you're just a legalist. Because you want to obey what Scripture says, I know that I can do whatever I want. This is not a license to sin. Furthermore, we have to remember that antinomianism, which is, we learned this term when we studied the whole Christ, that book, antinomianism, which means the law doesn't matter, I could do whatever I want. Antinomianism is not the cure to legalism. So when we do come across real legalism, we don't say, I'm going to fix that by just not obeying what God says at all, and then we're fixed. That's not the cure to legalism. There is a growing movement today, a movement of which I am glad to count myself as a member, of being Christ-centered in all of our Christianity. And so we sometimes use the word Christ-centered preaching Um, Christ-centered evangelism. In fact, I think that probably this phrase is becoming a little bit overused, so it doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, When a phrase is used so much, sometimes that happens. Um, And I I do hope um, that you see this as I preach from week to week to week, 
the book of Genesis, for instance, remember this, one of, one of the highlights from Genesis was in this Joseph story. And you remember in the Joseph story, we said that this is not a story about how if you too obey God, then you can become the greatest commander in the kingdom. It's not what the story of Joseph was about at all. It was about God's promise to send a seed. He promised in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send a rescuer. And the problem was, if, if Abraham's family died out in this famine, no rescuer. So Joseph's rise to power was less about Joseph and more about God and his promise. And in and, and that sense, the Joseph story was Christ-centered. It, it was Christ-centered because no survival, no Christ. And so God said, I'm going to fulfill my word, and I'm going to rescue this people so that Christ will come. That's what we mean when we say Christ-centered preaching. We, we want to know where Christ is and not fake it so that well, this tree is Jesus. Well, what does that even mean? We want it to be genuine, okay? Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what I want to do is to, to uh, warn us that sometimes out of good motives, people distort a Christ-centered approach to life by dismissing all calls to obedience, Say, oh, we're just going to be Christ-centered, so don't worry about saying anything about obedience. And sometimes it'll be said like this, well, just preach Christ. Well, yes, I do want to just preach Christ. But if you mean by that, don't preach any of the commands of Scripture, that's a distortion of what we would say is a good Christ-centered preaching uh, model. So, as an example, if we address the sexual depravity of our culture, one of the things that can come back on us is we're told to stop. Just preach Christ. Just, just, just preach Christ. Don't preach that. Just preach Christ. Uh, if we address the issue of abortion, then we're told, no, just, just preach Christ. Just, just preach Christ. That's enough. Just preach Christ. Don't, don't preach anything else. If we address theft or lying or laziness or pornography or we kind of push someone's button in the wrong spot or we address uh, the erosion of modest dress, then we're told, just stop, preach Christ. Just preach Christ. Um, I would consider this to be an abuse of the Christ-centered preaching that we hold so dear here at Crossview Church. 1 Corinthians turns this false idea on its head and teaches us that instead of dismissing obedience for the sake of Christ, we are to embrace obedience for the sake of Christ. Christ calls us to obey. Because you have been bought with a price, therefore, now go and act this way, in this way, in this way, in this way. Because Christ preach against sexual immorality, because Christ preach against immodesty, because Christ preach against lying, etc. The ESV Study Bible makes this observation. It says, At the root of much of the immorality and idolatry in Corinth, moreover, lay a lack of the appreciation for the holiness that God requires of his people. God requires his people to pursue holiness. That cannot be debated. That cannot be brought up as a topic for discussion about whether God wants that or not. And justification by faith alone is not an excuse to say, who cares anymore? And that's what 1 Corinthians is reminding us. I want to state with absolute clarity, with crystal clear clarity, that the grace that is available in Jesus Christ is never an excuse for any of us to adopt a cavalier attitude towards sin. Sin is serious. Let us not forget that. Sin is why Christ died on the cross. He did not take a cavalier attitude toward it. Neither should we. Paul, and this is not in 1 Corinthians, but in Romans dismisses this mindset in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? He says, no, 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 don't go and continue living in sin just because of grace. And here's perhaps what is one of the most, uh, one, one of the, uh, most scary things here about this whole reality is that a cavalier attitude towards sin fosters a cavalier attitude towards God's holiness. God is more holy than you can comprehend. You don't know how holy God is. We talk about the holiness of God, and yet when you see someone come face to face with the holiness of God in the Bible, what is their reaction every time? They fall down. God is holy. He is thrice holy. And we are never to adopt a cavalier attitude towards God's holiness. 1 Corinthians makes it abundantly clear that there are commands in the the Christian worldview and that those commands are good. This is the first theme in 1 Corinthians. The second theme is this. The church must pursue unity. This shows up right away in chapter 1. We see in verses 10 through 11, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling. So he's, he's, he's pushing for unity in the church. In eleven eighteen, in the first place, when you come together to church, I hear there are divisions among you. He's trying to fight against these divisions that are going on in the church. And then in 14.12, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up of the church. Build up yourself. Build up the church. Don't get distracted with divisions, but build up the church instead. Part of the disunity going on in the Corinthian church was that the, the, the members here became fascinated with the celebrity status of Christian preachers. This is something that can happen today, right? And so I, if we took a survey here. I think all of us could say, I really love this particular preacher. I really love this particular preacher. I love this particular preacher. Um, we need to be careful that they don't become a celebrity in our minds and that we value them more than Christ. So here's one uh, twelve. This is part of the division that's going on that Paul is addressing. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Um, I kind of wonder if this last group here, you say, well, what's wrong with following Christ, is almost like maybe the arrogant group, like, well, I follow Christ. I, I don't follow those. I'm, I'm, you know, the best. That could be possibly what's going on here. But this is division that's going on in, in the church. Divisions within the body of Christ do not accurately reflect the nature of the gospel. Divisions preach a lie about Christ. They make the claim that the gospel is insufficient to bring reconciliation and unity. To say that we're a divided church means that, oh, the gospel must not be strong enough to be able to bridge and fix those divisions in our midst. A divided church is a poor testimony to the world, and it demonstrates a careless attitude towards God's holiness. And, of course, this is featured in how the apostle addresses worship. Uh, Look at 1433. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's not this God of all these divisions. Outside of 1 Corinthians, I want to show you the reason why this is so important. Paul addresses this topic and says this is why unity is so important. And he says in Romans 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Paul making a direct connection between when he talks about unity. The direct connection is worship. He draws a line between the two things, and he says that you must be unified so that your worship is unified and that we're glorifying God together. Living in unity with one another, then, is something that enhances our worship. And this is, of course, the ultimate aim of Christian unity is worship. Paul's discussion on love, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, of course, uh, is going to be the, the central in addressing this issue. What does Christian love look like? 
um, Christian devotion and knowledge is nothing without love. And so thus a Christian seeks to emulate this 1 Corinthians 13 love chapter as we interact with one another. Okay, this brings us to our third theme, and that is this, the necessity of Christocentric sanctification. Now, obviously, this point is related to the one I just made a minute ago about our obedience. And when you first look at this, you might say, is this a contradiction from what he just said a moment ago? Uh, And I'm going to say that it is not. Um, A moment ago, I said obedience and holiness and sanctification are absolutely paramount in this book. We must obey. We must not have a cheap view of grace. And now I want to say how grace is compatible with that and how we need a Christocentric understanding of our sanctification, or we might say a Christ-centered understanding of sanctification. What I want to do is make the point that our obedience and God's grace, they are 100% compatible with one another. There's no disjointedness in this. A high view of grace, a high view of grace never downplays Christian holiness. Never does that. And so, of course, again, we saw this when we saw the whole Christ. And someone is in a church that is very legalistically oriented. And then they say, I got to get out of here. And so they go to a church that's very antinomian. And neither is the right answer. To, to, in fact, we said uh, in our study through the whole Christ that legalism really is separating the law of God from the person of God. So that I, I, I think that, well, I can obey God's law without God himself. That's legalism. I, I could lift myself up by my bootstraps. I am enough to do it myself. Antinomianism is the same exact thing because antinomianism also separates the law of God from the person of God, but it discards something else. It discards the law and says, I can just, God just loves me as I am, and I don't have to do anything. We don't understand that God's law is part of God's goodness to us. God is being kind. It's loving commands from a loving Heavenly Father, and they go together. And 1 Corinthians brings these together for us. So let me show you how this comes together. I told you that there are 100 imperative verbs in the book. Um, Do you know what else is prominently featured in the book of 1 Corinthians? The phrase, in Christ, or a variation of it, in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord. This phrase shows up in 1 Corinthians 20 times. 20 times we have in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord. Not only this, but Christ's preeminence is put on display because Jesus is called Lord 62 times in 1 Corinthians, and Jesus is called Christ 55 times in 1 Corinthians. This book talks a lot about Jesus, in addition to a lot about Christian holiness. It is absolutely and completely impossible to read 1 Corinthians and come to the conclusion that you can have ethics apart from Christ. I can have obedience and morality without Jesus. You can't read 1 Corinthians and come to that conclusion. There is no morality outside of Christ. There is no neutral territory where the Christian can hide. There is no place where the believer and the unbeliever have common ground. It comes down to this. Either you have Jesus or you are immoral. There's no no other option. There is no person who is moral without Jesus. 
you have Jesus or you are immoral. I want to bring you a quote here from J. Gresham Machen. Uh, if you um, uh, have not read his book, Christianity and Liberalism, uh, it's a uh, phenomenal read. And he addresses this issue uh, with the Sermon on the Mount because many critics are coming forward and saying, well, the Sermon on the Mount is an example of how we don't need Jesus to have ethics. We can have morality without Christ. And Machen says this. He says, may we not get rid of the bizarre theological element that has intruded itself even into the Sermon on the Mount? Because people are saying you don't need theology to obey the Sermon on the Mount. He says, and content ourselves with merely the ethical portion of the discourse. Can't we just say that, forget about all the theology, just worry about the ethics. We should just, uh, the, 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 the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He says, this question, from the point of view of modern liberalism, is natural, but it must be answered with an emphatic negative. You cannot separate the theology from the ethic. Unbelievers who want to say that we should do good things for other people. Atheists who say that we should not murder other people. They are stealing from the Christian worldview. They're borrowing our building materials because they have no foundation. In an atheist worldview, where everyone is just stardust, why does it matter what one speck of stardust does to another speck of stardust? It only matters if you put theology in the mix. It only matters if there's an authority that says you should do this and you should not do that. And so nowhere in Scripture are we permitted to be able to divorce these two concepts from one another. I want to give you just a couple of examples how Paul does this in 1 Corinthians. You are familiar with 1 Corinthians 7 and his sexual ethic that he gives. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 23, this is in that context. He says, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. Do you see the two here? Look at this. Bought with a price, what's that? Gospel. Do not become bondservants of men, what's that? Obedience. He doesn't separate them. Your obedience comes out of your new nature in Christ. Um, Paul, in chapter 12, makes a connection that we are the body of Christ. You can't divorce worship from that. It goes together. We see the centrality of Christ here in the victory that he gives in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through what? Through Christ. Wisdom comes from Christ. 1 in verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ who became wisdom. You see how that fits together? Even wisdom itself comes from Christ. Sanctification comes through Christ in 6.11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of who? Christ. The command to flee from uh, prostitution is grounded in our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What does that mean? That's gospel, right? Union with Christ, that's gospel. And then what does he say? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. What's that never? The obedience. You see how he's putting this together? The gospel and the obedience. Keep them together. Uh, the, the discussion on conscience issues in 8.11 by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. You're harming someone. You're disobeying. What is, what's the reason this is a problem? Because they're a brother for whom Christ died. What's for whom Christ died? It's gospel. See the connection that they're always together? Paul grounds his commands in Christ in 110. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's gospel. That all of you agree. That's obedience. See how he's grounding his commands in the person of Christ himself. There's two things you cannot say after reading 1 Corinthians. Number one, you cannot say this, that obedience is unimportant for the Christian, or obedience is, is optional. You cannot say that after reading 1 Corinthians. 
And then you also, here's the second thing you can't say after reading 1 Corinthians. You cannot say that Christ is unnecessary for holiness. 1 Corinthians forces us to say the opposite of those two statements. That holiness is important for the Christian, and the only way to holiness is through Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians teaches us. And since we're talking about the supremacy of Christ and the necessity of Christ, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which is probably the verse that most highlights his divine glory, where we read this. Yet for us there is one God, one Fa- the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Everything relates back to Christ and his preeminence, his glory, his majesty, all of it. So I know I've gone a couple minutes longer today. As we uh, land the plane today, what do we want to take away from this introductory message on 1 Corinthians? I think if I would narrow it down to one thought, I would say because Christ is important, holiness is important too. Because Christ is important, holiness is important too. On the one hand, some people want to emphasize holiness at the expense of Christ. They believe they can work hard enough to make ourselves holy. This is a skewed view of sanctification and one that will leave us empty, lifeless. Of course, this is legalism. On the other hand, some people want to emphasize Christ's grace at the expense of our holiness. This is also a distortion of uh, grace, and it's a separation of the law of Christ from his person. So we have to dispense with the dismissive attitude towards Christian holiness on the one hand, and then we have to dispense with the dismissive attitude towards our need for ongoing grace on the other. And that is why we're concluding today that because Christ is important, holiness is important too. And I think that theme is something that we're going to see throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So I hope as we start this together, it's an encouragement to us. I hope that Christ is elevated in our minds, that we find him more satisfying and more necessary so that we further agree with what we read in John 15, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't know Christ today, I encourage you to repent and believe on Christ. He's sufficient. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for all that we have in Jesus. We pray that as we go, we would find you satisfying in his name. Amen.